Colossians 1 and verse 18. Colossians 1, 18. Colossians 1, 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's join our hearts together in prayer as we come to the preaching of God's holy word. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the blessing of having an infallible word from you, the living and true God. We pray that you would bless this time and that the preaching of your word would be faithful and clear and bold and that your dear sheep who Christ purchased with his own blood would be edified and strengthened and helped. So we pray that this time would be encouraging, helpful and strengthening for all of us and that we may grow in our understanding to what it means that Christ and Christ alone is the head of the church. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we gather this afternoon, obviously to worship the triune God in spirit and truth, but also to remember and reflect on the reality that Triune Grace Reformed Baptist Church has been a particular or independent church for over a year now. If I remember, if I have my dates right, September 11th was my ordination council. September 25th was the church votes, and September 26th was the worship service at Grace and Truth for me to be celebrated as an ordained elder. And then October 3rd, 2021, we had an afternoon joint service here, which was our first service as a particular church meeting here. And then October 10th was our first time meeting in the morning and afternoon as a church as well. But October 3rd, 2021 was the official start of Triune Grace Reformed Baptist Church as an independent church sent out by Grace and Truth under their blessing to plant the gospel here for Christ and for his kingdom. And so it's been a wonderful year in many ways as we look back, gaining people, losing people, being encouraged by God's grace in our fellowship and our worship as we have grown as a church under the headship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful for that. And we come and I've been preaching through the Ten Commandments. I would have been on commandment number 10 today, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet. But I thought it would be good to take another text for this afternoon and preach something connected with our church and it being our one year anniversary. And I thought the text that I landed on Sometimes it's hard for me to do this because I like expository preaching where I know the next text is just the next couple verses. So sometimes it makes it challenging. You have so many verses to pick from, what verse to choose. But I landed on Colossians 1 and verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so I landed on this text because I think it is a great verse about who the head of the church is, and the importance of getting that right. And so the main point of this sermon is, Christ is the head of the body of the church, the beginning and firstborn from the dead, 
And therefore, in the church and in every other area, he must have the preeminence. It's a mouthful, but I'm trying to summarize the text. Christ is the head of the body of the church, the beginning and firstborn from the dead, and therefore in the church and every other area, he must have the preeminence. So my first point, Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the body, the church. My second point, he is the beginning and firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning and the first and firstborn from the dead. And my third point, in the church and every area of life, he, Christ, must have the preeminence. He must have the preeminence. And so again, my first point, Christ is the head of the body, the church. That's how the verse starts. And he, namely Christ, is the head of the body, the church. And he, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. We see in this section, it's kind of the, towards the end of a section, we see the reality that Christ is both the creator of all things, verse 16, for by him all things were created. So Christ is the one who made all things. But this context is about in light of his redemptive work, in light of him suffering and entering into glory, in light of his death and resurrection, he is now the head of the body, the church. So he's sovereign over all things as our creator. Christ has made everything in existence, but he's now uniquely the head of the body of the church in light of his redemption for sinners. In light of his redemption for sinners and dying upon the cross and rising again from the dead. Christ and Christ alone is the head of the body, the church. No mere man, no king, no pope is the head of the church. The Pope of Rome is not the head of the church. Our confession actually says he's that antichrist. He's not the head of the church. He's that antichrist. He's certainly not the head of the church. No king. Historically, the king has said he's the head of the church. The word of God does not teach the king is the head of the church. It doesn't say any mere man is the head of the church. The only one who is the head of his body, the church, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone is head over all things to the church. He alone has sovereign rule over the church. When we say that Christ is the head, what do we mean by that? When the word of God says that Christ is the head of the body of the church, what it means by that is he has complete authority over the church. What she believes, what she does, how she practices her life as a church, Christ and Christ alone is the sovereign authority over the church. The only one who has ultimate, unlimited say in the church is not elders, is not pastors. It's Christ and Christ alone. And so Christ, when we say he's the head of the church, we mean he has sovereign dominion, sovereign control over what the church does and what the church believes. The one who has authority over what the church is and does is none other than the suffering and entering into his glory, Christ our Lord and Savior. No one has authority over the church except for him. This is why it's not even good to call someone the head pastor. That's bad language because Christ alone is the head pastor or the head of the church. People who know me, I don't even like the language senior pastor because who's the chief shepherd of the church? Jesus Christ. Chief shepherd could be translated senior pastor. Pastor and shepherd are synonyms. Chief could be understood as senior. Who's the chief shepherd? Jesus Christ. 
We're under shepherds, but we're not senior pastors. Christ alone is the senior pastor of his church. And so he has sovereign authority over the church. Let me show you this this reality pictured in the tabernacle. If you turn to Exodus chapter 40 with me, Exodus chapter 40, we see this principle made clear in Exodus chapter 40. The tabernacle is obviously a type of the New Testament church. The church is called the temple or the tabernacle of the Holy Spirits. And so principles in the tabernacle give us types of what should be true in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the temple of the Holy Spirits. The church is the temple of the Holy Spirits. And we see in Exodus chapter 40 and verse 16, it says this. Thus Moses did according to all that the Lord had commanded him. So he did. If you look down at verse 22, the same chapter. He put, he put the table in the tabernacle of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil. And he set the bread in order upon it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Or verse 25. And he lit the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. Or verse 26. He put the gold altar in the tabernacle meeting in front of the veil and burned sweet incense on it as the Lord had commanded Moses. Or verse 29. And he put the altar burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered it and offered upon it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. Or verse 32. Whenever they went in the tabernacle meeting, and when they came near the altar, they washed, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Do you think there's a point here? Do you think there's a point? It said it over and over and over again. It doesn't say it once. It says it over and over again. How did God win the tabernacle? As the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses was not to be creative. He was not to invent the tabernacle to suit his desires. He was not to say, you know what? What would the children of Israel want in a tabernacle? What would attract the people to this tabernacle? What would be something that they would like? What is something that would make it attractive to the world? What would make it relevant? He didn't care about that at all. It was as the Lord had commanded Moses. He was to do it exactly how Jehovah told him to do it. He was to do it exactly according to the pattern that was given to him by the Lord himself. His job was not to be creative. His job was to be faithful. His job was not to invent. His job was to be obedient. His job was not to say, what would I want? But what does the Lord himself want? That was his job. Because at the end of the day, every Christian and every minister wants to hear from Christ, not well done, good and successful, not well done, good and creative, not well done, good and Invented, but good and faithful servants. And that's what's pictured with Moses. Moses was a good and faithful servant who didn't make up his own ideas, but simply followed the instructions of the Lord given to him. And the tabernacle, like I said, is a type of Christ. Christ says, destroy this temple, and three days I'll raise it up. Or he, dwelt, he tabernacled among us. John 1 verse 14 could be translated, he tabernacled among us. But we know the temple of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God, is uniquely the church under the New Testament. The New Testament says it clearly that the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is the house of God. The church is the house of God. And what do we learn from this, the tabernacle, 
and the Christ being the head of the church. They're basically saying the same exact thing. That the church, if it really believes that Christ is her head, must, by necessity, seek to do only as he has commanded. Seek to only do what he wants because it's his tabernacle after all. It's his temple, not ours. And therefore, when we say that Christ is the head of the church, we, we merely are giving lip services. We say that Christ is the head, but we do our own thing. If we say that Christ is the head, it means that we do his thing, not ours. It means we do what he wants and not what we want. Everything that the church believes and promotes must be as the Lord commanded. Everything the church does must be as the Lord commanded. Because Christ is the head of the body, the church. Christ is the head of the body, the church. Let me show this principle to you as well in Jeremiah chapter 7. If you turn there with me to Jeremiah chapter 7. It's put in a very striking way. Jeremiah chapter 7. It's one of those verses that has some shock value to it. It has so much shock value. My brother Nathan, after Bible class, wanted to show me this verse to see what I thought. After teaching Bible class at the Christian school, he came up and said, what do you think about this verse? He wanted to see what my thoughts were, because it is a shocking verse, what's put. And I knew exactly what it was getting at, and it's, it's a wonderful verse to get the points. If you look at verse 30, Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 30, it says, For the children of Judah have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it. And they have built the high places to Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire. What's the reason that God says it's wrong? That's the point. Which I did not command, nor did it come into my heart. I find this so striking. The reason why it's such a striking verse is you think he's going to say it's wrong because they murdered. And God says don't murder. He's going to say it's wrong because... Many different reasons. What made it wrong? What the text says. What you can draw from the text. What made it wrong? God never told them to do it. God never told them to burn their sons and daughters in the fire. It didn't even come into his heart. And they're doing something he didn't tell them to do. Because what's the tabernacle and the temple to be done? What is God's worship to be done? It's to be as the Lord commands. And God says, I didn't, the reason why it's so heinous that you burned your sons and daughters in the fire, what made it so terrible, is I never told you to do it. What made it so terrible is God says, I, I never told you. You became creative. You became inventive. You try to sing, you try to offer offerings your own way. And that's what made it so bad. It's, it, I just find, the reason why it's so interesting is all the reasons God could have gave, that's the reason he gives. That's the reason he gives. And so obviously you can't talk. Many of you know what I'm, what I'm pointing to in this, in this. Because you can't talk about Christ being the head of the church without talking about the regular principle of worship. Because they're, they're, they're so interconnected. Christ being head means we do what he wants. Means we, we worship and believe and obey as he commands. And so we see that the, the tabernacle or the temple of the New Testament, which is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, must be governed and Erect it and structured, not according to the passing whims of fallen man, but according to the infallible truth of Christ, the head of the body of the church. And by God's grace, looking back over this year, I know we haven't done anything perfect, because if we did it perfect, we would no longer have remaining sin, and we know we do until glory. But one thing I know we have done as a church is we have, confe- we have 
been committed dogmatically, or as Steve Loss would say, bulldogmatically, to doing nothing more and nothing less than what God wants in his house. We have been committed wholeheartedly saying, Christ is the head of the church. We don't want to be inventive. We don't want to be creative. We want to be faithful. And one thing that people who would come to our worship or even members of our, our church will say thing, or things that probably stand out to them is how simple worship is. How simple it is. Our worship is almost the exact same in morning, but just with a little bit extra. But we do that purposely because we do as the Lord had commanded. Because we're not trying, we know that what we do at this church is not going to attract many people who don't want the truth. We understand that. <laughs> we know that people aren't going to want to come here if they don't want the truth. They'd be bored out of their minds. But we're not concerned about attracting people, attracting lost people with carnal means. We're concerned about being faithful and allowing God to build his house his way. Because we, we confess, don't we? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And we might draw disciples in if we be creative, but we'll draw disciples to ourselves, not to Christ. We'll make our disciples because we were creative and not Christ. Because we're saying, Christ, we have a better plan than you do. We have a better idea. We have a better structure. We have a better way of doing things. Instead of seeking to be submissive to your word. There's many people in evangelical circles who would confess with their lips that Christ is the head of the church. They know the Pope of Rome isn't the head of the church. They know the king isn't the head of the church. They know their pastor is not the head of the church. But they don't live like it. They confess it out of their mouth, but do another thing. They say out of one mouth, Christ is the head of the church. We must do what he wants. And then with the other, with their practice, they say, well, maybe not. Because if we actually do what he says, we might lose people. People might not come anymore. People might not give as much. And so they say out of their mouth, Christ is the head of this church, just like every other church. But it's only mere lip service if it doesn't go in practice of saying, what does Christ want for his church? What does Christ want for his church? And so we must confess and believe and practice the headship of Christ over the church. There was men in church history who were willing to die over this. You understand, people were willing to die over this doctrine. This was not a, a small peripheral issue. The Puritans especially were willing to die on the issue that the king is not the head of the church. Christ is. You know that they were willing to lose their pulpits over that. They were willing to die before they said that the king is the head of the church. They were willing to lose their lives by saying, no, Christ is head and you're bringing things into the church that Christ has never told us and you are bringing pollution upon us. And they're willing to die for that. And now people say, well, why do you have to get fired up about these type of things? Because we've so lost our commitment to the reality that Christ is the head of the body of the church. In the Protestant Reformation, there was many things going on. The preeminent thing, from my perspective, was sola scriptura. What's the ultimate authority? That was the preeminent thing. But underneath that was, who says what happens in the church? Is it the Pope of Rome? Or is it Christ by his word? That was a huge thing in the Reformation. Who determines what happens in the church? The Pope or Christ? And the Reformers, to a man, said, it's Christ, not the Pope. It's Christ, not anyone else. It's not the bishops. It's not the cardinals. It's not the Pope. It's Christ himself and Christ alone. This is what it's all about. That they were willing to say this is of the utmost importance because we confess 
that Christ and Christ alone is the head of the body, the church. Now my second point, he is the beginning and firstborn from the dead. He is the beginning and firstborn from the dead. This, first, this phrase could be a little confusing, both of these phrases. What does it mean he's the beginning? What does it mean he's the firstborn from the dead? Well, very simply, what it means is Christ is the first one to been resurrected. Oh, but Pastor Sam, there was many people resurrected before Christ. No, there wasn't. No, there wasn't. Christ was the only one who was resurrected to never die again. That's what we mean by resurrection. There was many people resuscitated in the sense they were brought back to life, but they died again. They died again. Christ alone rose to never die again. That's what it means. He's the beginning. Christ was resurrected and now he lives in immortality to never die again. He is the ever living savior. He will never die again. When he raised, when he resuscitated Lazarus, or if you want to use the the language, he resurrected Lazarus. Lazarus was going to die again. But Christ, when he was raised again on the third day, the first day of the week, he will never die again. He has an indestructible life. He lives as a priest forever because by his resurrection, he gained for himself glory, honor, and immortality. Because he suffered and entered into his glory. Adam, the first Adam, was supposed to obey unto glory. We know that because there was a tree of life in the garden. He was to obey unto glory. He was to obey, and at some point he was going to have access to the tree of life to live forever in a glorified state. Adam was not glorified in his condition in the garden. If he was glorified, he wouldn't be able to sin. The last Adam, because the first Adam failed. The second Adam came and obeyed and died and rose again and had access to the tree of life so that everyone who's in Christ will take the tree of life. And what do we see at the end of the book of the Revelation? The tree of life. Why? Because our champion, Christ, has won victory. He has access to the tree of life. And if we're in him, we have access as well. And so we could say that the whole point of the Bible, there's many ways to summarize it, is how Adam lost the tree of life. Christ won it so his people can win it in him. Because he's the beginning. He's the beginning. He's, he's the first of this resurrection life. He's the first one to enter that Sabbath rest. He's the one who has died and rose again and entered into God's rest and resurrection. And we will, if we are in Christ on the last day, enter that Sabbath rest with him. He's entered that rest and we're waiting to enter it when he returns. He's the beginning, brothers and sisters. He's the beginning of God's new creation. And everyone who is in Christ is a new creation spiritually now and physically at the second coming. Where we, will, we are spiritually resurrected now, if you're in Christ, but we will be physically resurrected like Christ at the last day. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. What, that's getting at a very similar reality as well. He's the firstborn, the chief one to be resurrected. He's the first in the order of resurrection. If you turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, And if you look at verse 21, verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, 
Christ the first fruits. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. Christ is the first fruits. He's the first fruits of the harvest. He's the first one who's been resurrected. In Adam, all die. In Christ, we're made alive spiritually and then physically in the sense of resurrection. Christ is that first fruits. And everyone will be raised, all believers, unto immortality at his coming. He's the firstborn from the dead. He's the beginning. And the only way that we can have spiritual life in this life and resurrection life at his coming is if we're in him as the second Adam. We don't, enter, we don't get access to the tree of life like at the first Adam could have. Adam could have done it by his perfect perpetual obedience and been able to eat the tree of life. No person in light of the fall can enter the tree of life that way. We enter the tree of life on the coattails of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why will you and I, if we're in Christ, have access to the tree of life in the new heavens and earth? Because we have come to the one who suffered and rose again and entered glory. And because we're in him, God gives all of his children access to that tree. No one will go to the tree of life saying, me and my merit did it. No one will say that. We will say Christ and Christ and Christ alone gives me access to the tree of life. The reason why we have immortality in life is because we're in him. He is the beginning. He's the first fruits. And then it says in this text, afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming. Those who are Christ, those who are in Christ at his coming. And so, beloved, we confess that Christ has alone at this point entered that rest. He alone has entered that rest. And that's why the book of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4.11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. We who believed have entered the spiritual rest. But we have not entered that resurrection rest until the second coming. Therefore, we're striving to enter it. What is sanctification? But striving more and more to enter that rest that Christ has already entered into. We're striving, we're looking forward to the eternal Sabbath rest that is yet to come, that we're striving to enter because he's the beginning. He's the beginning of the new creation. He's the firstborn from the dead. And so we see these realities that Christ... And Christ alone is the beginning, and he is the firstborn from the dead. Now let me go to my third point. In the church, in every area of life, he, that's Christ, must have the preeminence. Must have the preeminence. It says at the end of verse 18, that in all things, he may have the preeminence. In light of him being the head of the body of the church, in light of him being the the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, in light of all that, in light of all those glorious realities, he must have the preeminence. We've seen that Christ has preeminence because he's the creator of all things. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. Everything was created by the Son of God. So he has preeminence as creator. This preeminence, so he's talking about preeminence as the mediator of the new covenants as the mediatorial king over all the earth. He ought to have preeminence in terms of creation. He has preeminence over everyone and everything because he made it. But what is the authority that was given to him that he said right before the great commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. That is resurrection reigning authority that's been given to him because of his resurrection from the dead. 
He had all authority already because he's creator. Now he, had, now he has authority because he's the redeemer of God's elects. And so he is the one who in all things may have the preeminence. Not in some things, not in most things, but in all things. Let me just say this. What this text means is Christ is not only the head of the body of the church. He's also the head of the states. Christ is head of the state. The civil government must bow its thing to Christ. Because he must have, in all things, preeminence. Is the civil government part of the all things? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. In all things, he must have the preeminence. So who is the civil government to serve? Jesus. They are a servant of Christ. If they're fulfilling their office rightly. And they will be judged on the last day. Every civil magistrate, every civil ruler will be judged on the last day. Insofar, how are they faithful to Christ in their office? If they were unfaithful, they'll be judged severely. If they're faithful, they'll be rewarded. Every civil ruler will give an account to Christ, not merely as an individual, but as an officer of a civil leader in a commonwealth. Everyone will have to say, because does not Romans 13 say that all civil leaders are servants of God? They're ministers of God? They're deacons of God? And that he, Paul by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean they're servants of Baal or Molech. Servants of the true God. The one true and living God. They are to serve him. And magistrates are good insofar as they serve Christ. And they're bad insofar as they rebel against Christ. Because in everything, he must have the preeminence. He also must have the preeminence in the family. Not only in church and civil government, but in family government. Families are to be governed by Christ's word. Children be taught from their youngest years that Christ is their authority. And they are to obey and honor him. In the family, who is the authority? Not the parents, ultimately, but Christ. And insofar parents submit to Christ, they're doing a good job. Insofar as they make their own ideas to raise children, they're sinning. Parents are not allowed to even make up their own decisions in their own home about how they rear and train their children. Christ determines how you do that, not you. And so even if the world hates spanking, the church must do it because Christ commands it. No matter if the world says it's illegal to spank, you must do it because Christ commands it. And you hate your children if you don't. That's what the Bible says. You hate your children if you don't spank them. So no matter how much the culture might say spanking is bad, it's abusive, Christ told you to do it, so you must do it. Christ is the one who says, whether you walk by the way, lie down, rise up, in every area of life, Christ is be preeminent. And you must do it because he's the head of your family. He's the head of your family. He's to have authority in your home. And that is only seen insofar as those parents say, it's not our desire to decide how we raise you. It's Christ who told us. And when we spank you, when we do family worship, when we catechize you, all we're trying to do is be faithful to Christ who redeemed us. So Christ must have the preeminence in all things, in the civil government realm, in the family, and especially in the church. And especially in the church. It goes back to my first point, but he must especially, we must do his bidding. And the most important thing someone can ask when they're making a decision about what the church does, particularly in worship, is has the Lord commanded that? Has God told us to do that? Or have we made that up? Can you find a chapter and verse that tells us about that? Or have you decided that in your own mind because you like it? Can you prove that from Scripture? Or has that just been something you've always done so you continue to do it? Can you, can you show that Christ wants this? Or is that something that you say, well, it's too hard to change? People are so used to it. People like it. We have to keep doing it. Well, then you're giving lip service that Christ is preeminent, but you don't actually believe it. 
Because we must say, what the church does, we must say, can we say, the Lord has commanded us to do this like he did Moses. And it doesn't mean you have to have an exact verse that says the exact thing, but you at least have to have the concept or principle in the Bible. It at least has to be found some way. You have to defend it some way. You can't just say, well, we've always done this. And that's where a lot of churches get, beloved. Sadly but truly, they think, we've always done it this way. It'd be too hard to change. It'd be too hard to change. We've always done it this way. This is just how we're used to. It's just what we've done. And so they rather be unfaithful to Christ to please the masses. They rather keep people than be faithful. We had to lose people here to be faithful. We did. I'm sure people have talked about me making decisions with Rob and Chris and people, anyway, why are they doing that? Because we thought we were more concerned about being faithful than keeping people. That's why. We are more concerned about doing it Christ's way than, being, than having bigger numbers. That's why. Because we genuinely believe that Christ is the head of the body of the church. We genuinely believe that. And if that means we lose people, so be it. Because he must have the preeminence. He must have the preeminence. So th- this is what we believe. This is what we hold fast to. This is what our church is all about. And pray God that this will be our church 20 years from now if he still gives us that long. That we would still believe Christ is head of the body of the church. We would still believe he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And we would still believe and practice and obey that he must have in our families, in our churches, and in the state, he must have the preeminence. Oh, that God would keep us with that framework. And we would never deviate from it. We would be happy to be small and faithful, then big and compromised. Can God make churches big that are faithful? Yes, he can. I'm not saying that big churches are inherently compromised. I'm just saying it's better to be small and faithful than big and compromised. It's better to have little numbers, little numbers and faithful than compromising for the masses. We, we see this with Jesus. Remember in John 6 when he had all those people, he fed them? Tons of people. He had tons. Big old group of people. And he said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus, you're messing up the plan. We had all these people. What's going on? We had all these people and now you're messing up. All of them left. All of them except for the 12. And he says to them, are you going to leave also? Are you going to leave also? And Peter stands up. Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. But Jesus did not want people there to get their bellies filled if they were not willing to commit their life to him. That's the point. Jesus was okay with losing the masses because he did not want them to be deceived by saying, you're good with me just because you have your belly full. Because unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Jesus, in modern church growth, quote-unquote movements, would have been utter failure. He had 12 close disciples and one of them betrayed him. He's resurrected and ascended. He has 120. The Lord of glory had 120 people at his ascension. That's what the Bible tells us. Modern church growth, he's an utter failure. But Jesus, and we are to model ourselves after him, was more committed to the faithfulness of the truth than he was to many people. And this is what the church must be committed to in every generation. This is what the church must be committed to in every generation. Are we more concerned about hearing, well done, good and faithful servant, or well done, good and successful servant? I've had to come to the grips, and I've, I've said this publicly to the church I pastor. I'm okay with pastoring a small church my entire life. That's okay. If God blesses it and, and grows us while we're being faithful, that's great. That would be fantastic. I would love it. Of course, I want people to be saved and converted. We had a baptism today. This was fantastic. 
I love it. Another one came into membership. I love it. But I'm not, it's not worth compromising over. It's not worth compromising over. And so Christ, and Christ alone is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in all things, he may have the preeminence. How do we apply a text like this, even though I've been applying it throughout? If you're here and you're without Jesus Christ, or you're not sure you're saved by Jesus Christ, if you're not sure where you stand with God today, the most important decision that you can ever make is to make sure you've repented and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because Christ, because he has the preeminence in all things, he has preeminence over your life, whether you acknowledge or not. He is Lord of your life, whether you submit to him or not. He's the Lord of everyone's life, whether they acknowledge or not. We don't make Jesus Lord, we confess that he's Lord. He's always been Lord all along. And if you're here without Christ, you will hear from him on that last day, not well done, good and faithful servant, but depart from me, you cursed. And you don't want to hear those words. You don't want to stand before Christ after hearing a message like this and hear depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire. So if you're here today and you're without Christ, what's keeping you? What's stopping you? What's holding you back? What's keeping you from bowing the knee to Christ and repentance and faith in him? What's stopping you? What's holding you back from knowing that you know that you know that you're in Christ? What's stopping you? There's nothing worth, there's no sin. There's no pleasure that's worth dying and going to hell for. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? The answer is so obvious he doesn't answer. Nothing. It profits a man nothing. May today be the day of your salvation. That you might believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And be rescued and be delivered. Because he is the head of the body of the church. And may you be brought into the family of God and into the church where you can find blessing and fellowship and grace that nothing this world offers can ever give. And then for God's people, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must always remember it's not our church, it's Christ's. That's the, that's the whole emphasis of this passage. It's not our church, it's Christ. It's not our ways, it's Christ. And we must therefore actually practice that belief. That belief is mere lip service unless our heart's desire is Where do you find that in Scripture? Where is that doctrine in Scripture? Where is that practice in Scripture? Where is that in Scripture? That's what it means to truly believe that it's Christ's church, not ours. I think Paul Washer has a famous phrase, Christ's church, Christ's way. Something to that effect. Christ's church, Christ's way. That's all I'm getting at. That's that's what my sermon's all about. Christ's church, Christ's way. It must be done His way. And if we actually believe that He is the head of the church, we will make sure that what we do as a church and as families and as this civil government, if we're civil leaders, is we will make sure that it's done under His authority. And how do we know it's under His authority? Not because we thought it up, but because we see it in the Word of God. Because we see it in the Word of God. And then what an encouragement it is to know for us that Christ has entered that rest and we will enter with Him. This life has trials and sorrows and suffering and pain. It has many joys, but many trials as well. And what a blessing. There's coming a day where in resurrected form, in resurrected bodies, we will experience no more sorrow, pain, or sadness because all those things will pass away and we'll be in resurrected bodies. All anxiety, all fear, all temptation to the world, flesh, and the devil, all of it will pass away because we will then be in a glorified body in the new heavens and new earth. What a blessing to know that all those things will pass away because we are we have entered that rest with Christ. 
what hope that brings to people to know that the worst thing I can experience here is not worth comparing to the glory that I'll experience there. What a blessing to know that the, the greatest sorrow here is not even comparable to those things. The Bible calls this the, the worst suffering in this life light and momentary affliction. That an eternal weight of glory. That's the comparison. Light, momentary, eternal weight of glory. And since Christ is the head of the body of the church, because he's the firstborn from the dead, he must have all things. He must have the preeminence in all things. In your individual life, in your family life, in your church life, and in, even in America, he must have the preeminence. He must have the authority over your life. And you genuinely believe that insofar as you're submitting to him and obeying his word. It doesn't mean that true believers won't sin. True believers will. But because Christ is our authority, we repent when we sin. And we don't want to be in sin because we know that it's grieving the God that we love. And the Savior who died and rose again to save us. And so if you are convicted by this in your own life or family or church, whatever it might be. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But he doesn't forgive us so we live the same way. He forgives us so we change. He forgives us so our life might be different. He forgives us so we might walk in newness of life. He forgives us so that we might put off the old man and put on the new man in him. And so may we do that by God's grace, knowing that Christ alone is worthy. Do you not want to hear, beloved saints, well done, good and faithful servants? What an encouragement that will be. That's what we want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servants. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we pray you would apply these things to us and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.